Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. On today's episode, we're changing things up a bit. John is joined by Vivian Salama, White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, and she's going to interview him about his new report. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Welcome to Babel. This is John Alterman. We are turning the tables a little bit today to talk about a report that I wrote called Ties That Bind, Family, Tribe, Nation, and the Rise of Arab Individualism. Instead of me asking the questions, I'll be answering the questions. And we've roped in a special guest, Vivian Salama. She's the White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, the former Baghdad bureau chief for the Associated Press, and one of the Middle East reporters I really have grown to respect over the years. Vivian understands the context that we've written about, and I thought Vivian would be a great person to open this discussion. So Vivian, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. It's um, an excellent opportunity to talk about important things. Congratulations on your report. Thank you very much. So why don't you give the listeners just a preview of what the report is about? So the report is about how Arabs think about loyalty and how they think about individualism, how they relate to their families, how they relate to tribes, how they relate to states, and how they relate to each other. And when we spoke to people, we spoke to more than 100 people in four different countries, mostly younger people, but certainly older people. We found a lot of diversity, but we found that the way that people are relating to each other is changing. And there's a lot more individualism And people are saying, you know, that the tribe isn't doing anything for me, or when the tribe doesn't do anything for me, why should I owe something to the tribe? Why should I spend so much time with my family? I have other things to do. In a part of the world where those kinds of ties were so overwhelmingly important, the dissolution of those ties and the rise of individualism is a real game changer. So what do you mean by individualism? I mean, how does that manifest itself, especially for Americans who hear that? In many ways, they're becoming more like Americans have been for a long time. And and our idea is that that people should be individuals. And our idea is the frontier. And we have pioneers and they go out and they they, turn the forests into farmland and they go out and they conquer the West. And our sense is everybody should stand up for, for his or herself. In the Arab world, the model has been... In fact, the Bedouin, the idea that you have tribes of people often related by blood who will work for each other, who will protect each other, that the affinity that people have to each other, based oftentimes not on what they think, but who they are, governs everything. What we're finding or what we found was that in many cases, people say that system isn't delivering for me. I have to look after me. And I'm going to decide what I'm loyal to. So you say the system isn't working. Are we talking government or is there something else? Is it community? What are you talking about here? So, that's not so it's interesting because one of the things that's driving this is governments are becoming more capable. So people don't need non-governmental groups like families and tribes to help them get a job. In fact, as hiring gets more streamlined, it's harder to use family connections to get people a job. Mm. Uh, as governments provide security to everybody. People don't need somebody else to provide security. That 
changes the fabric of how people relate to each other. It also affects how people think about politics and how governments have to change the way they think about politics. It sounds like it could also drive a more competitive society uh, for jobs and for other things as well. It's a lot more competitive. People say, I don't have free time. I don't have time to visit with them. It's too time consuming. It's too far away. If my parents want to see me, they have to come visit me. It's creating a society in which in some ways people keep trying to optimize. And as they optimize all of these ties that have defined Arab society for hundreds and hundreds of years are beginning to fray. I have a copy of your fabulous study right here in front of me. Uh, so it, you focus on four countries. Yes. And uh, so can you talk about those countries? And maybe uh, I know you all spend a lot of time on the ground in these places. Maybe share with us a personal story or two that you encountered during the time that you were uh, working on this. So one of the things we want to do is we weren't going to go to, to 22 Arab countries. So we tried to pick a range. We tried to get some countries that were wealthier and some that were poorer. We tried to get some that were more tribal and some that were less tribal. We tried to have ones that have different attitudes toward governance, some with kings and rulers and some with presidents. Um, we ended up going to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, and Tunisia. And it gave us a nice range of experiences. We found young people frustrated in sort of every place with the demands that are placed on them. And maybe that's what happens to young people everywhere. <clears throat> but what I also sensed was that, that people are plugged in. People would tell you about books they read. They would tell you about things they had seen on TV. They would tell you about messages they got. People are thinking about the issues of not only how does this society work and what's my role in it, but I was struck at the number of people who said, you know, there's a better way to do this. And here's what it is. One of the most striking stories that I still remember is, is we we're talking to a young Saudi and we we're told he's a Saudi leftist. And in my mind, I'm, I'm going to go to an apartment in, in South Riyadh with uh, candles and beaded curtains and Che Guevara posters on the wall, and lots of people smoking cigarettes. And we went to instead uh, somebody's lovely sort of diwania with a, or majlis with a, a large seating area and they served a lovely dinner. And, and we talked to this young Saudi who was very thoughtful and very creative and, and, and really was grappling with what Saudi Arabia should be and could be. Uh, two months later, he was arrested. He remains in jail. And I remember walking out from that dinner and thinking, this is the hope of Saudi Arabia. They have young people like this who are so creative and so thoughtful and so interested in understanding how their society works and how it can work better. What were the striking differences that you found, say, between the UAE, which has embraced the West as an ally, but also has an enormous foreign population in the country, which inevitably probably impacts its own population, versus some a place like Tunisia, which has not had that experience? How does that impact the younger people especially? You know, in many ways, the Tunisians are more cosmopolitan than the Emiratis because the Tunisians have been traveling a lot. Tunisia was, was colonized by the mm -hmm. French. There really is a sense in which Tunisians start from a different place. They don't remember a parochial Tunisia. The Emiratis, for all the existence of foreigners in the Emirates, Emiratis tend to live in Emirati neighborhoods and they don't have non-Emiratis over to their home very much. 
Emiratis are very family-minded. And what's different is that the, the explosion of malls in the Emirates has created sort of a third place where young Emiratis feel they can go out. It's not really hanging out with foreigners, but it's not really hanging out only with your family either. And that's where the real shift has been. I certainly didn't hear anything about mall culture in Tunisia. I heard a lot about mall culture in the Emirates. But there's a way in which the rise of malls in the Emirates has freed people from the confines of family compounds. One of the most striking changes in the Emirates is how much more mobile Emiratis have become over the last 20 years. Emiratis not only don't live in neighborhoods that are dominated by one tribe or another very much anymore, but more and more Emiratis are living in different Emirates than they were born in, marrying spouses outside of their Emirate, and suddenly the family is two or three hours away. I lived in the UAE for four years and it sounds like a newer phenomenon because even when I was there 10 years ago, it, it really was not the case, what you're describing. So that definitely does seem like a shift. Uh, what about places like Saudi Arabia where there's a significant divide between wealthy and not wealthy within the within the local population, the domestic population? Uh, this individualism that you describe, you know, are those with less wealth in Saudi Arabia struggling with those with more wealth? Is there some sort of conflict or how, how do they interact with each other? Are there opportunities for them too? Yeah, I think there are still ways in which the, the tribes try to distribute resources. When people have fewer options, then you're going to rely on the tribe. And if the government is relying on the tribe, then that's where the line is. So, And I think the government of Saudi Arabia is in some ways trying to reinvent tribalism mm -hmm. and to continue to use it, to invest in it as a way of, of maintaining the support of the population. Certainly poor people anywhere feel they have fewer options. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there is a little more tribal pride, certainly less cosmopolitanism among poorer people. That's not surprising. But even there, as people travel for work, as people live further away from home, tribes take care of them less and they feel they owe the tribe less. Now, against the current backdrop, we see the protests in a number of different Arab countries. Can you kind of bring us into that context of what, what we're seeing play out currently in the Arab world on the political scale and how this um, goes back to everything you're talking about in the study? So it's a little bit like talking about weather and climate. You know, I can't tell you that these changes are what's behind the protests in Iraq and Lebanon. But I can tell you that one of the elements of the protests in Iraq and Lebanon are people saying the sectarian political systems serve sectarian leaders but don't serve the population. It's exactly the kind of thing we expected to see when we did this study. That people say it's like a tax that you have to pay to whoever the leader of your group is, but people don't see return on taxes. People see it's taxation without representation. It's taxation without benefit. And what we're seeing is people, individuals, are saying, this doesn't, this doesn't work for me. Let's have a different system. The key thing to me is, does it work? Can you lead to an outcome that's not like Egypt, which a lot of Egyptians felt actually set the country back several steps before the fall of Hosni Mubarak? But can you find a way using these mass protests, transcending sectarian divisions, to create responsive politics that come out of negotiations between protesters and the government, which don't cause the downfall of the government, 
but lead to progressive evolutionary change. If they can do that and essentially have a pacted transition in Lebanon and or Iraq, I think the demonstration effect that will have on the region, that there's a way to create change that doesn't lead you down the road of Syria or Yemen or Libya, three countries that fell into civil war, but leads you toward an improvement in the lives of people, in the rights of people, in people's economic accomplishment, if they can figure out a way to do that, that will shake the region to its core. Slightly shifting gears, you know, we we hear in my job, my day job, uh, President Trump is constantly talking about ISIS and the defeat of ISIS. We saw Baghdadi, uh, the leader of the group, was killed recently. But obviously, that's not there's there's more to jihadi movements in the Middle East than just ISIS, uh, smaller groups for with different kind of inspirations uh, that that make people join them. And so how did that factor into to your study? Uh, what did you find? So one of the really interesting things that is happening is as some of these ties that essentially you're born into weaken, some people decide to have ties that they decide on. They can be religious ties. They can be professional ties. They can be jihadi ties. Um, and jihadi groups are very good at, at, in many ways, providing what a family does. They can provide a livelihood. They provide companionship. Sometimes they provide a spouse. They provide a set of rules. And for people who are looking to really belong in societies that can feel rootless, where people can feel really lonely in a big city, being part of a jihadi group, being part of something bigger than yourself these sort of ties of affinity that you choose can be really powerful for people who feel that modern society doesn't give them a connection. You know, in some ways we see this in Western societies. We used to see it with Masons, right, and, and with Elks and all the fraternal groups, and you have some business clubs and cities and things like that. That's not an unusual thing for people to, to create these kinds of ties. It's unusual in the Middle East where overwhelmingly the ties were based on who you were, not what you were. And we're finding increasingly that people have the freedom, if they want, to create ties about what they are or what they want to be. Those ties can be so much more powerful than the sort of primordial ties that you're, you're born into. Mm -hmm. And it helps explain the attraction of jihadi groups to some people. Mm -hmm. um, before we wrap up, why don't you bring it home for us? Why should Americans be paying attention to these trends that you detail in this study and beyond? We're going to have interests in the Middle East, whether we want to or not, partly because of oil, partly because of terrorism, partly because of transportation, partly because there are Americans living there, working there, trading with the region. I think this could be an opportunity not for us to remake the Middle East in our own image, but to help the Middle East move to a new place could improve the lives of lots of Americans. It's not about spending money. It's about thinking about what does it take to change a society? How can we seed ideas? How can we incubate different kinds of ideas? We do some of it. We used to do much more of it when there are more Arab students coming to the United States. I think that the seeds are there. Uh, we can help them grow. And I think in the longer term, the, the return on the investment for Americans can be profound. And you don't think that the current political climate here in America has led that part of the world to think we're disinterested in their futures? Do you, 
Do you, what do you think the future of that relationship no, certainly, is? Certainly governments have felt we're disinterested in their futures and populations have never felt we're mm. particularly interested uh, in their well-being. My experience, though, is that, that people are always intrigued by some part of the United States. They're aware of a lot of the United States. Some of it's attractive, some of it's unattractive. Uh, but people are always aware of it. And I think that that makes us relevant in a way that we sometimes take for granted. We sometimes overestimate our power, but I think we also underestimate our power. We underestimate our power to be relevant to the aspirations people already have. And if we can listen a little better to what's going on and help people accomplish the aspirations they already have, I think we can advance a lot of our interests, a lot of their interests simultaneously. This change is going to go on. Fascinating. The study is called Ties That Bind, Family, Tribe, Nation, and the Rise of Arab Individualism, a fascinating and quick and important read. Everyone should grab a copy. And it's on the CSS website, www.csis.org slash Mideast. Thank you very much, baby. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Babel. We're going on a short break for the holidays, but we'll return in January starting with a special six-episode miniseries, China in the Middle East. In this series, we talk to leading experts on China's strategy there. We look at China-Middle East relations, how the Middle East is responding to China's growing role in the region, and areas of U.S.-Chinese competition and cooperation. We hope you enjoy it.